Two and a Half Admins, episode 134. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Before we get started, your customary Clara plug, Alan, is FreeBSD versus Linux, tracing and troubleshooting. Yeah, so as part of our continuing series, we're providing a bit of a Rosetta Stone. So if you know how to do tracing on one platform, you can look up how to do it on the other. And just in general, providing information on how to deal with problems on both. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the news that has dominated the last few days is that Silicon Valley Bank has collapsed. This is the bank that a lot of startups put their VC money in when they got it. And thanks to some bad investments and then not dealing with those bad investments very well, it went from being quite valuable to failing in a very short time. It appears that it's not really the bad investments that were the problem. Yes, the bank did make some bad investments, but the bank was largely healthy and uh, it was securing another round of funding to shore up any damage that had been done by the bad investments. And all this would have been okay. What really tanked SVB was not bad investments, but bad comms, bad PR. A basically unrelated but nearby bank that dabbled very heavily in crypto, I think it was called Silverlink, had uh, collapsed just a few days prior due to really disastrously stupid investments in crypto. Dun, dun, dun. Surprise, surprise. So, you know, everybody in this space was a bit on edge. And so when in the same week, SVB announced that it was looking for funding, yada, 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 and didn't really do a very good job of saying exactly why or that everything really was fine, yada, yada, yada. Well, its depositors saw that and said, ooh, well, that sounds bad. Let me just go ahead and pull all my money out before it's gone. And that very old school run on the bank killed it. The investments they had were not bad. They were secure U.S. treasuries. The problem is they bought them for a really long term, like 10 years. And then with the interest rate change, trying to sell them quickly to raise money to, for people to cash out, they couldn't get a good rate of return on those. I included a graph in the show notes comparing a bunch of the, you know, the big 15 banks in the U.S. or whatever. And most of them try to keep what's called the common equity tier one capital ratio, meaning that they have the money to be able to deal with the positives wanting to take the money out. And usually those banks try to keep it at 10 or 12%. I know the office of the financials inspector or whatever in Canada actually raised the requirement of Canadian banks another half percent late last year because of the inflation and, and so on. But you can see in the chart that most of these banks have lost some money just because of their investments, the stock market in general, and the, the rate changes causing treasuries to be worth less and so on. But you can see SIVBs adjusted for their unrealized losses. So the stock's worth less, but they haven't sold it yet. So they haven't actually lost the money. But you know, if they tried to sell it, they would lose the money. It meant that all like 12% of their capital was actually evaporated. And so that's why they were trying to issue more stocks and sell those for $1.25 billion and also sell deposit certificates and get another half billion dollars in order to be able to withstand this. But as soon as, yeah, the rumor mill starts on this and places like Y Combinator tell all their related startups to get your money out, then that's a bank run. Because it turns out, just like all of society, banking only works if everybody believes that it works. I think we could also say that just like almost everything else in modern society, banking is a just-in-time solution. So it can break a little bit more easily than we might really be comfortable with. Basically, any just-in-time manufacturing is 
I mean, effectively, one might argue that it's permanently broken and just barely working, but the just barely working is the most efficient way for it to function. But, oh boy, it doesn't take much to poke a hole in it and have it fall over because you have this long chain of dependencies, each one of which has to be satisfied or you don't get the product where it needs to be in time. So banking is pretty similar when it comes to what we're talking about with a bank run because the way banks work, the way they make their money – a bank is never actually financially capable of giving all of its customers their money back without collapsing because it's using that money. <laughs> yes, it's lent that money out to people or it's invested it and it's backing mortgages or, or whatever it happens to be. And so as we see here, even the biggest banks generally only have about 10% of their assets in anything remotely liquid because that's how they make their money. And that means that anytime you have a credible rumor going around that a bank is going to collapse, basically you're presenting all of its depositors with what in Sociology 101 we call the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, the way it works is uh, you have a partner and you and your partner each have to decide whether to screw each other over or whether to play things straight. And if you both decide to play things straight, you get the best possible outcome. However, you get a better outcome out of screwing your partner over than you do out of your partner screwing you over. So you have cooperative types who like to play it cooperatively and hope the other person will also play it cooperatively. And you have, you know, innately, one might say pessimistic or in some cases, perhaps sociopathic types who are like, mm -mm, nope, I'm going to screw the other guy every time because I don't want the risk of the worst possible outcome where I played it straight and the other person betrayed me. So when you tell a bank's entire set of depositors, oh, I think that bank is going to collapse, you've just created a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, and while game theory says optimize to not suffer the worst consequence means that in the prisoner's dilemma, you should always screw the other person because worst case, you get screwed too, but they never get away, doesn't actually help you here. And here we are in 2023, people are still working their way through the toilet paper they bought in 2020. <laughs> and to be fair, you know, it does help some of those people, Alan, because the, the mm -hmm. first few of those people will succeed in getting their money out. Yeah, and that's part of why things happen so quickly is once this started to go bad, the FDIC and the California banking regulator stepped in and seized all the bank's assets because they figured they could sell them for more and make the depositors whole better than the bank doing it themselves. That's well worth talking about because a, a lot of the discourse that's been floating around social media has had a lot of pretty wildly uninformed outrage. And one of the more common mistakes that I see people doubling and tripling down on is this idea that the taxpayer is going to be making all the large investors who were not FDIC insured because it wasn't you know a checking account of less than $250,000 they think that the Fed is going to make them whole, and that's not the way it works. There's actually not anything particularly special about the way the Fed is handling the SVB bank failure. Yes, in particular, the FDIC is doing exactly what they always do, right? It's like all the banks pay in to have this insurance so that if a bank collapses, the depositors are protected up to 250 k Right. The banks are the ones who pay for the FDIC insurance to begin with. So when FDIC pays out, it's the banks as a whole who got nailed. Now, with that said, that's going to have follow-on effects. You have to be a customer of some bank and all banks have to pay in. So in that sense, the FDIC stuff, yeah, that still affects you. But again, that's the FDIC payouts to individuals with checking accounts with less than $250,000 in them. 
your larger depositors are not FDIC insured. And the way that the FDIC steps in and tries to make them as whole as possible is not paying money directly out from the FDIC. It's by regulation, they ensure that a takeover is done by a non-failed larger banking entity. And part of the terms of that takeover is that they have to do the best that they can to make those depositors whole in return for which they get access to the entire client list of the failed bank, which makes it well worth their time and investment to make those folks whole to begin with. Because the majority of them, they will continue to get their business just by having been the default, oh, hey, that's where my money is now. Yeah, a little bit of that. And basically, the FDIC is going to step in, take over SVB, and sell it for parts and use that money and what Jim just said to pay back. And so that's why they said on Friday when they announced this that, you know, everybody that's insured will be covered by the insurance. And that comes out of what they'll sell the bank for. But everybody else, they'll get a dividend immediately of we know the bank's worth got at least this much in assets that we can sell. And so we can give some money to everybody right away. And then you'll get certificates for the rest of your money and we'll pay out as much as we can over time after we you know sell off the assets of the bank to some other bank and figure it out and what's also been interesting is a bunch of hedge funds has been going around to these people offering them 60 and 70 cents on the dollar to buy those certificates because they think once the economy rebounds the holdings that svb had are going to go back to being worth enough money that they'll get more than 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, but the companies that need their money right now would be willing to to sell their interest in that money now for 60 cents on the dollar. The hedge funds are offering payday loans. Well, it's not a loan. They're, they're, we'll buy your deposit and give you the 60 cents now. It's more like the ones where you uh, sell your lottery winnings. Well, yeah, that or uh, the... Um I don't know about Canada, but in in the United States, there are a bajillion little, like, just closet in a strip mall places where you go in and uh, file your 1040 easy for, like, the simplest possible tax returns, and they just hand you money immediately based on that. They take a cut out of it, and then they get your actual tax return whenever it comes in from the government later, and people just queue up for that stuff. It's pretty predatory in the same way that the payday loans tend to be. And again, that's effectively what the hedge fund folks are doing. They're like, this will be worth more money over time. But we think there's probably going to be a lot of people over a barrel and, you know, willing to take less money if they can get it now. Sweet. Let me roll up on some of that. Oink, oink. So what does all this mean for startups, Silicon Valley culture, the tech industry generally? A couple things. It definitely scared the bejesus out of a lot of individual depositors. So people that work at these companies and happen to just bank with SVB because it meant getting paid was easier. And just SVB tended to have the kind of things that people in tech would like to have from a bank, right? You can do more things on the website and not having to stand around at a branch. And those people definitely got quite scared or, or learned about maybe having some diversification there. That's the key word right there. I was waiting to hear that diversification. When you're managing a lot of money, You don't want all your eggs in one basket. You want some diversification. And that doesn't necessarily mean that like one company should be splitting up its assets amongst five different banks, but it's not the worst thing in the world to be using a bank that has a diverse customer portfolio. I think one of the big lessons that can be learned from this is that it's a little bit of a red flag when you look at a bank and almost all of that bank's customers are basically the same as you, like that's an issue because that means an issue that affects one of you affects all of you. And well, then you get a bank run. Well, and and this is literally the type of thing the FDIC was invented to solve because 
in the olden days when you had lots of little regional banks, it's like, well, it turns out the regional bank that financed everybody in town's mortgage, if everybody in town worked at the steel mill and the steel mill closes, that bank is screwed. <laughs> and it's kind of the same problem. But yeah, in this case, I was actually talking about like, maybe you shouldn't have all of your money in one bank as a person, not also as a company. And then you also don't want to bank with a company that only deals with one industry, because if that industry goes bad, then that bank's going to have trouble. And so it was interesting to see in the in its filings to the SEC, uh, Roku said of its, you know, $1.9 billion in cash and equivalents, it had about $487 million in its SVP account. But that accounts for about 26% of its cash. And so that's going to sting a little bit. But as long as they have enough to keep going in the meantime, they're probably going to get a reasonable amount of that back, right? The the bank collapsed, but, you know, the bank only lost about 10% of its assets. So most of the money is still there. It's just how liquid it is and how long it's going to take to turn it back into money and all these other related bits. But the real worry was that we see people lining up at regular banks that aren't exposed to this degree. And if the idea catches on and we get, you know, contagion, this, this could actually cause more problems, but it shouldn't. But if everybody becomes afraid and decides to keep money under their mattress instead, it can cause problems. It seems a little unlikely that it's going to spread very far beyond where it did just because it has been dominating the news cycle as hard as it has. And honestly, 90% of the reactions that I've seen from anybody who's not already in that very specific circle is <laughs> burn, burn, we don't care, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of, oh, God, it could happen to me. I better go get all my money out of the bank. Over the weekend after this happened, there were lines in all kinds of different places in the country that weren't Silicon Valley of people lined up around blocks to, to get money out of a bank. And it's like, really? <laughs> I don't know that that makes sense. Yeah, but, you know, when it's a line that wraps around the block like once of normal people with little normal accounts that are FDIC insured anyway, so it's not a ton of money, like that's not ideal for the bank, but that's not a run that collapses the bank. On a modern scale, in an urban setting, if the line's only going around the block once and it's all just like normal people with, you know, maybe 300 bucks in their checking account, like it's eh, whatever. What you're worried about is if all the businesses in the country decide, oh, well, I don't think any of these banks are stable. And I mean, I don't exactly know what they're going to do. I don't think it's very practical to try to move all of your money, like, I don't know, offshore, if you think other countries' banks will be better than America's banks? Stash it in your data center in cash, maybe. Oh, there's the argument for crypto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pull all your fiat out of the failing American banks and dump it all into Dogecoin. What could go wrong? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A 
Create a free account and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Man accidentally drove away in someone else's Tesla using the Cars app. This was in Canada where a man drove off in a car that he thought was his because it was the same color and make and model and everything, the same Tesla. But then he suddenly realized, hang on, the windshield wasn't cracked before. And hang on, why am I getting a text from a guy who's got into my car, got my number and details and texted me to say, hey, dude, we've accidentally got the wrong car here. This isn't supposed to happen with Teslas. Well, it's not supposed to happen with any car, but it does happen with every car in uh, particularly the initial stages of setting up, you know, electronic lock and unlock with a remote. This problem was happening way back in the 90s when Cadillacs first started having like, you know, a key fob with a remote that you could pop the trunk on. You would all the time in an airport parking lot for a couple of years, it would not be that uncommon to see somebody press a button on a Cadillac key fob and have two different trunks pop open. Because they did have, you know, an an individual signature for each car, but it really wasn't complex enough to be considered a good. And you had a lot of collisions where you might have two vehicles within range of one fob that would end up having, you know, the same signal. That problem has gotten a lot less common as this general technological concept has gotten, you know, more mature in production in wide scale. This is the same thing that we're seeing here. Basically, Tesla has just made the same error that all the car manufacturers have at one point or another. And we had two Teslas that had, you know, the same the same key. It doesn't say this here, but based on the way the app works, the app basically just has your phone emit the same data via the uh, the close range Bluetooth that the the key would. You, you normally have like a little key card like you would use to unlock a hotel room. And you can kind of wand that over the B pillar on the Tesla to unlock the car. And you put it on the console of the Tesla for it to be willing to start, you know, quote unquote, for you to drive it away. The phone and the key card do the exact same thing. So this basically means that it almost certainly had nothing to do with the app specifically. We just had two Teslas with the same key. And I would be astonished if these two individuals' cards wouldn't have worked the exact same way to get into each other's cars. This sucks. It's something Tesla should absolutely fix. It's not really that revolutionary or Tesla-specific. I will note also, just as a side note, as a lot of you know, I drive a Tesla. I've got a gray Model 3 Performance I bought last year. And um, I have a similar but completely non-electronic problem in that my wife and my children both tend to like wave very enthusiastically at anybody they see driving along in a gray Tesla. (laughs) Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it is some very confused dude who is not me. Although you had a not related but similar story, right, where... The app was used to start the car once and then drive away, but didn't have the key and then couldn't get back? Yeah, so um, my wife once took the kids on a trip about 150 miles away, and she unlocked my Tesla and started my Tesla, but then she got out for some reason and left her purse with her key fob in it on the kitchen counter. And then she drove 150 miles away, which worked fine, but then she got where she was going and she could no longer get in the car, let alone start it. So... I ended up having to remote unlock and remote start the car from my phone from 150 miles away, which thankfully did work because otherwise I was going to have to drive a uh, 25-year-old pickup truck 150 miles away to pick her up. But I don't understand how Tesla could make this mistake. I get like 25 years ago when this whole idea was new. Yeah, the idea of somebody walking down the street with a thing trying every combination was 
Nobody would do that. But now it's like, how do they not have a key that's 256 bits? Yeah. So like when I first heard this headline, I assumed it was just the two cars were parked near each other and they just both happened to be unlocked because the owners were nearby and he got in the wrong one and it started because the owner was nearby and drove away and it didn't have anything to do with his phone actually starting the other car. But the article seems to suggest it was his key worked in the other car. Yeah, your idea would not and could not work, Alan, because the way that works, you, for one thing, you have to be standing pretty close to the car for the automatic unlock to work, you know, because you get your phone in your pocket. But more importantly, just having your phone in your pocket will unlock the car for you to get in it. It won't necessarily allow you to start the car and drive away. Again, the, there is there is a sensor there. You know, a final thing about that, and this would have solved this person's problem. Well, I shouldn't say solve. This would have mitigated the issue. One of the options that Teslas do have, which I've enabled on mine, is pin to drive. You can unlock the car all you want, but if you don't know the four-digit pin, it will not start and you cannot drive it away, which it wouldn't have kept the person from getting into his car, but it definitely would have kept either of them from driving away with the wrong one, unless they also had a collision on their four-digit pin. (laughs) But again, surely... They could have unique keys for every vehicle. It, it, in this day and age, it just doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't. And the people who are responsible for this software are the ones that Elon has put in charge of Twitter. No wonder it's blowing up left, right, and center. I don't know. I'm still more concerned about the fact that Jim could start his car from 150 miles away. So if that's doing that over the internet, what's stopping me from turning Jim's car off over the internet. Basically, not not having an app with my key in it. Yeah, but if the key is so short that it's repeated between a bunch of Tesla owners, that seems like a key space I could search. Well, it does, but I think it would be irresponsible to suggest that this is a common problem given how many right. Teslas have been sold, and this is the first instance we've heard of it. And let me tell you what, there's not that many different colors or models of Tesla At this point, I think probably most Tesla owners have tried to get into a car that wasn't theirs at some point. I've only owned mine for a year. And, you know, I live in a kind of a backwood city of a definitely backwood state. And I have tried to get into somebody else's Tesla twice now (laughs) in one year. So if this was a common collision, I, I can't see this being the first time we'd heard of it. But if it was 256 bit, how many combinations is that, Alan? You're good at maths. Two to the power of 256. That's a number so big you can't explain it. Two to the power of 32 is 4 billion. And then you double it. So 33 bits would be twice that. Like 64 bits is 18, like billion, 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 billion something. So it should not happen then. If it was a 256 bit key, then yes, it would not happen. Nah, you got to back that off. If it is 256-bit key, it is very unlikely to happen. And that's also still assuming that it's not a case of like a factory glitch. Yes, the random number generator at the factory being bad. Yeah, like like you, you could literally just have a machine not successfully mark off, oh, I used this one and, you know, use it like twice in a row instead of refreshing the buffer mm-hmm. that the key that it's imprinting things with is. We don't know what the issue is here. We don't know the actual length of the key. We don't know what caused two machines to have one. And the only way to make sure that these keys are actually unique would be for Tesla to maintain a database of all of them that it like checked for consistency, which also has some privacy implications that not everybody would be super on board with, I think. Searching the key space is one thing, but if you have a list of every possible key, you can go through the ones that would unlock Jim's car a lot quicker. 
I bet you that's in a CSV somewhere on Tesla's infrastructure. It's not on Tesla's infrastructure. It's in a Google Drive. Oh, yeah. Or an Amazon S3 bucket. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in Zero Trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Ellen or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Christian has done. He writes, I understand ZFS is the right choice in many cases, but is it also the right choice inside a VM running on top of a virtual host, which already is using ZFS as its file system? Currently, I'm using ext4 without LVM inside the virtual machines as it's simple and reliable but is there a better approach maybe one where i could take advantage of zfs on the host and there's a bonus question that we'll get to in a sec but let's tackle this one first it really depends what you're doing in the vm and if you would benefit from the features of zfs inside the vm if you need snapshots then ext4 without lvm isn't going to do that for you and maybe you'd rather use zfs on zfs anyway but if your needs are less then maybe something else makes sense it really is quite situational. There's not that many reasons to avoid doing ZFS on ZFS, but whatever you're comfortable with and whatever makes sense for your workload is probably the right answer. I would typically advise avoiding nested ZFS unless you really need it, and I just don't think there's that many situations where you really need it. Nested ZFS can perform well, but it's complicated. There's a lot of potential edge case interactions between the guest ZFS and the host ZFS, How to get the best performance in that situation is extremely complex and workload dependent. If you're not likely to be bottlenecking on storage performance, you don't have to worry about it. But if you need a lot of storage performance, it's usually going to be better to figure out, okay, which side do I really need ZFS on? Do I really need it on the outside or on the inside? Pick one and go with that. And on top of that, I would usually say that on the outside is the best place for ZFS. Put it on the host run your VMs, give your VMs simpler file systems. I do a lot of UFS2 for FreeBSD VMs and EXT4 for Linux VMs. Because again, if you nest it, I've actually been doing some research on that and it's quite complex. There is no one cookie cutter answer. I went into my research assuming that there would be a cookie cutter answer. If you want the best performance for nested ZFS, make sure your record size on the inside match or your a shift on the inside matches your record size on the outside. But it turns out in some cases that's true. In some cases that's not true. It's workload dependent. And just, there's a lot of variables. 
that you just don't have to worry about if you just did a simple file system like ext4 on the inside and did all your snapshotting and whatever on the outside. Definitely want to make sure people don't get the idea that you shouldn't run ZFS inside ZFS, but you will probably be better off with something simpler just because you don't need ZFS doing all of its magic twice because that's doing more work in total. All right, this bonus question then. Bitwarden or one password since LastPass needs to be replaced? I'd prefer to keep the vault out of the cloud this time. For me, neither one. Key pass all the way. Depends on your needs. We looked at Bitwarden a lot more. Uh, and got as far as a, a test setup for deploying something where, you know, I needed something we I hosted myself to manage the passwords for a couple of people. Yeah. Didn't you hire some random hack to set that bed warden up for you, Alan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it seemed to work pretty well, although it seems that some of the same problems applied there as elsewhere. No matter what it is, you got to make sure it's using enough PBKDF rounds or whatever for the how many times it has to hash the password to make the key so that it's actually secure and protected from brute force because what the defaults were in 2010 doesn't make sense now. Computers are a lot faster. It's a lot easier to rent capacity and so on. And so the number of iterations of the key derivation function you have to run has to be higher. And some of them support upgrading that over time and some of them don't. And all of these tools have the problem of they're trying to trade off to make it easy enough that people will actually use it, which oftentimes means giving up a little security here and there. And they don't always make the same decision you would like them to. And it makes it complicated. The reason we leaned more towards Bitwarden is because there's the open source stuff like Vault Warden and that we were a little more confident that this isn't going to go away completely or leave us kind of stranded compared to some of the other solutions. Yeah, I was going to mention Vault Warden because that's written in Rust. It's the unofficial self-hosted option for it because the official self-hosted option apparently is quite heavy. Yeah, but you know we were looking at integrating it with single sign-on and so on, so the heavier one made sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's Vault Warden is basically the reason we started looking at Bitwarden in the first place. Partly because we kind of surveyed our team and asked everybody what they were using at home and what they liked, because we figured that would also mean better adoption in the team. To be fair, I said for me, neither key pass all the way. And, and that is true. But with that said, I tend to approach that from the perspective of one very technical person with a lot of secrets to manage. If you've got a whole team and you need to you know, implement corporate policies and know where all the stuff is and have some centralized control over a lot of people's vaults, uh, self-hosted Bitwarden does not seem like a bad way to go. But as with all of them, you got to keep up to date with the best practices and the updates. Which that's one reason that KeyPass tends to be a bit more attractive for somebody who's like, you know, an, an individual very technical person who needs to manage their secrets. I mean, you don't have to be a very technical person. I, I shouldn't keep saying that. But KeyPass is really attractive as an individual's password vault because it requires basically zero setup. You install the client either on your desktop PC or your phone or your tablet or both or all three or whatever. And uh, you, you just have a flat file that is your vault that is sufficiently encrypted that unlocks with your master password. And you can handle replication of that vault between those machines however you would like. One of the more convenient ways is most of the clients have built-in Google Drive integration. So you can store your flat file vault on Google Drive where it's no good to anybody who does not have the master password. And all of your client devices can basically refresh it, grab a, a local copy from there, which they'll keep in cache. And they'll keep checking to see if the version up on the Google Drive is more recent than their current cache. And then they'll 
save a new version up when they need to or pull a new one down when they need to. And it does have good collision detection. I use this on multiple devices that I update from all of them, you know, at various different times. I'm not 20 different people trying to use one vault that way, but for an individual, it seems pretty clear to me that collision detection is robust enough. The other nice thing that you get out of that that I'll mention is, again, it doesn't just open your vault directly from the Google Drive if that's where you put it. And you don't have to put a copy of it up there at all, period, if you don't want to. It's just a convenient way to sync things. If you do, it genuinely does pull and keep a local cache. It's not just an ephemeral cache that goes away as soon as you close the app. It keeps it around. And that is actually a good thing because every once in a while, I have seen my vault get corrupted on the Google Drive side, and I have to open it from the local cache and then save it back again. So that local cache has saved my butt a couple times. Well, also, if your internet's out and you need the PIN number to convince your ISP that you're the owner of this account, you really would like to be able to have a copy of the vault offline. Yeah, that is an excellent point. If you're normally using your vault, you know, from a mobile device, as as I do, 99% of the time, it's just the phone in my pocket. Even if you don't have any internet access currently, it will absolutely open the local cache copy so you can turn off the building alarm or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on the slowly deteriorating husk that is Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.